Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and what better way to start the new year than from inside an indoor coral reef in Colchester? Okay, that's not strictly true. A better way to start the new year would have been from an outdoor coral reef, but I'm sure the people here at the University of Essex will put me right. And apart from corals this week, we have news of a project examining diseases affected by climate change and first-hand experience of experiments out at sea in Antarctica. I'm putting on thermals first and uh, thick socks, uh, fleece, and then I'm going to put my boat suit on. And the boat suits are completely like a dry suit, so if we fell in, sort of amount of buoyancy that will uh, permit us to float and to not get cold. More on that later, as we're going to start exactly where I am now, which is inside the University of Essex's Department of Biological Sciences, and in particular at their new Coral Reef Research Unit. Coral is a marine organism that plays such an important role in its surrounding environment that coral reefs have been called the rainforests of the sea. The Planet Earth podcast first visited this unit almost a year ago to report on research into the impact of light and changing sea levels on coral. A prototype system was also in place to examine ocean acidification and the next stage was to scale everything up for full experiments to begin. And that's why we're back here with both the director and assistant director of the Coral Reef Research Unit, Dave Smith and Dave Suggett. Dave Smith, as you're the director, let's start with you. My colleague Richard Hollingham was the person who was last here, so you're going to have to explain what's the difference between what he saw and the rather beautiful, you could charge at an aquarium, display of tanks that I can see now, which are filled with coral and fish. Yes, exactly. Well, last time Richard was here, we had just a single tank with numerous bits of coral and some fish in, but a very much an isolated system. What we're now seeing is the new facility. We have a central large tank which acts as a whole ecosystem with corals, fish, numerous different types of organisms that make up a coral reef. And then around the outsides of the central system, we have a designated site which we use to fragment corals to grow through experiments. And on the other side of the central system, we have smaller tanks where we can very precisely control the environmental conditions, from light levels to temperature, and in some cases, water quality as well. It almost reminds me of a nursery for coral, because you've got like the equivalent of individual aquatic cribs for your different species and different shapes of coral, as well as the small baby pieces of of coral that it looks like you've cloned in the same way that you might with strawberries. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what we do have. The the idea of the big central system, which acts as a normal coral reef as, as far as possible, is to have natural growth conditions. But corals, when they grow, one way in which they can grow is by breaking off and regrowing into these new structures, very much like a seed into a new tree, if you like. So we do have a designated nursery area where these small bits of coral can be grown up into ideal conditions to produce these new big branches. It's quite noisy in there, and we can hear the the sound of the pumps, which are pushing through all, all the water in all the various tanks. We're in the doorway at the moment. Let's just go inside, where it's even noisier, and take a closer look at this large, central, rather beautiful tank which um, has got three 
levels, three tiers, almost pyramid style, of coral. There are lots of different types here, different colours. Can you give me an idea of the range of species that you've got? Sure, yeah, it is quite noisy in here, but that sort of mimics quite nicely what a coral reef is. It's a noisy, high-energy environment, and that's quite important for us to be able to mimic the sort of environments that we see in nature. So what we have here, we have the bedrock, which is... On top of the bedrock, there's attached different types of algae, some of which produce calcium skeletons and help build up the reef. We have about 20 to 22 different species of coral, ranging from very highly branched corals to more boulder-like corals and encrusting corals. We have soft corals, which are part of the same family of the reef-building corals, but don't produce the skeleton and of course dotted inside and within the little holes and cubby holes of the coral itself we have numerous different species of fish all of which play important functional roles on the reef mopping up seaweed and algae and keeping the reef in check and a balance. Is this coral all from one particular region? This coral we see at the moment, about the 20 species, are all from the Indo-Pacific region around Indonesia, the Philippines, which is actually the centre of coral biodiversity. So you find more species there than anywhere else in the world, and most of our research in the field is based out in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, so we're mimicking a typical Indo-Pacific reef here. Well, let's, um, let's just walk back to the uh, entrance of the coral reef unit, where it's uh, a little less noisy. Dave Suggett, you've now got all these conditions that you can control. This time you're especially interested in looking at the effects of ocean acidification on coral. How do you go about doing that? Well, ocean acidification is is an exceedingly complex process. We're only just beginning to understand the carbon chemistry associated with that. As a term or a process, it effectively describes uh, excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere entering into the oceans and normally oceans have a natural capacity to mop up that co2 but with so much co2 now coming from the atmosphere it's exceeding this what we call the buffering capacity of the oceans and so gradually we're seeing a decline in in ph making it less alkaline rather than more acidic for want of a better term why this is so important is that corals require um, inorganic carbon for several reasons first of all for photosynthesis they require carbon dioxide or Um, bicarbonate. And secondly, they need carbonate ions to be able to form their hard shells, which makes them um, so important for constructing coral reefs. And how do you go about monitoring then how much carbon carbon dioxide a piece of coral is taking in? Well, this has been what I, I think really the sort of keystone element of our research was to try and take existing technology that's used in terrestrial systems where you can easily monitor carbon dioxide in the air and actually start to use that to monitor carbon dioxide in seawater. So in order to do that, we've uh, taken technology from the medical industry where you have gas-permeable tubes, and it lets the gases obviously permeate through them and then be be measured by the terrestrial system. So this is a major step forward for us, and for the first time being able to measure carbon dioxide in seawater continuously and rapidly alongside various other measures of the carbon chemistry. So we have a, a holistic view of ocean acidification that's actually been very rare until now to do. And this has hampered a lot of preceding efforts to understand the impact of ocean acidification on organisms. Dave Smith, obviously you're not going to know exactly what's going to happen until you finish your experiment, but you must have a crucial idea in terms of what the differing effects of carbon dioxide are going to have on coral. 
Absolutely. You know, the fundamental importance of this experiment is to really get to grips with how changes in CO2 levels influences the coral's ability to secrete these large calcium carbonate skeletons. And we know from preliminary studies that as you decrease pH, the ocean becomes more acidic, the ability of corals to secrete these large structures decreases. Now that's of pivotal importance to the whole ecosystem because coral reefs, as you explained in your introduction, rainforests of the sea, are so biodiverse and so productive because they're very physically complex. So any environmental conditions which decrease coral's ability to produce the complexity will have a major consequences for the number of species a coral reef has and the half a billion people who depend on coral reefs for food. Dave Smith, Dave Suggett, thank you very much for showing me the Coral Reef Research Unit here at the University of Essex. Good luck with the rest of the experiment and I'm sure we'll be back by the end of the year to hear about your results. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast. Climate change, as regular listeners will be aware, is not all about the environment. It's also considered a threat to both human and animal health due to its potential effect on infectious diseases. And this is why scientists are analysing climate data to examine the possible impact that a changing climate might have on the spread of certain diseases. It's part of a project called Enhance, which is being coordinated by the University of Liverpool. So I visited the university's School of Environmental Sciences to meet Dr Andy Morse, who began by outlining some of the diseases that might be affected by a changing climate in the United Kingdom. The ones that we've looked at so far are blue tongue, which is a disease that affects particularly sheep, liver fluke, which affects cows, and we've also done some runs uh, on malaria as well. When you say you've done some runs, what do you actually mean by that? What sort of things are you using to get your information at the end? We take uh, daily temperatures and daily rainfalls from the climate models. And in this uh, project, we're using regional climate models, which are run just for Western Europe. But they give us a much higher resolution, maybe down to 25 kilometres. Malaria is something that many people have, you know, it's been in the news a lot. People are are very aware of it if they go to hot climates. What would the conditions have to be in the UK for it to take a grip here? Well, the climate is good for malaria. I mean, not as good as it is in Africa. And we did have malaria here, and other parts of Europe were very prone to malaria up to about the Second World War. The reason we don't have malaria now is that we have drained marshy areas that people do not come into contact with the mosquitoes and of course if there are any cases they're immediately treated. So it's not necessarily a question of warmer wetter weather instantly means we get more mosquitoes it's also about the landscape as well. Yes it is about how the landscape is used and also how often people come in contact with the insect with the mosquito. Less people work in the countryside, people's houses are more uh, are better built, so there are fewer insects inside them than perhaps there were a hundred years ago. But the climate is is right for for many of these um, insects to thrive, and in fact, mosquitoes do thrive in in the UK. Who will this information be useful for? In the project, we're working with a, a couple of government organisations. One is is Defra, and the other is the Health Protection Agency. Uh, with the Health Protection Agency, we're working on on the potential spread of the tiger mosquito, which can infect people with a variety of viruses, including West Nile, dengue, and other ones. 
And their interest is whether the UK is prone now or in the future to the invasion of this mosquito. What stage are you at so far? We're about halfway through the project and we're still to decide on what we think are the top 20 infectious diseases that may be impacted by climate change for Western Europe. And the diseases that we've looked at so far are really pilots uh, to see, to develop the techniques and to find ways in which to convey the information to the people that have to make the decision. You're based here in Liverpool. Are you looking at the whole of the UK or are you just using regional data that would say look at the northwest? Both really. The model has a resolution of 25 kilometres which allows us not to look at individual villages or towns but it does allow us to look on a, on a regional basis. For example, the differences between southern England and, and the northwest where we are, are today. Have you discovered at all at the moment what the sort of range barrier is? Does a, a, a maybe a, a, a one degree rise in temperature suddenly increase the likelihood of a certain disease? I don't think at the moment we've looked at the, the, the thresholds in, in that level of detail. What we do know is that for the tiger mosquito, then the overwinter temperature is very important. We also know for blue tongue that the transmission of blue tongue in, in northern Europe depends upon the temperature to allow the virus to replicate. So I think uh, we're starting to put together an idea of those thresholds, but I don't think we have a, a sort of shopping list of them so far. Andy Morse at the University of Liverpool. If you're listening to this podcast from the UK, then you probably don't need reminding that we're in the middle of an extremely cold winter. And while it's tempting to consider human hibernation, spare a thought for scientists in Antarctica, as this is one of their busiest times of the year. It may be the height of summer there, but there's still plenty of snow and all sorts of experiments are underway. Claire Lehman is the medical doctor at the British Antarctic Survey's Rothera Research Station and in her latest audio diary she took advantage of the current good weather to find out what goes on outside the base. Just had a radio call from Terry, who's the marine assistant at Rothera, for a hand, um, telling her for a hand doing the CTD. That in the background is actually a twin otter plane just taking off. Perfect timing. Terry has asked if I give her a hand going out and doing a CTD, which is an experiment done uh, from a boat over in the sea, looking at the water column. So uh, I'll leave her to answer all the technical questions, and I'm just going to go and get ready. So we're going down to the boat shed. I'm just going to go and get kitted up in a dry suit, and uh, then we'll be heading out. We're now down in the boat shed and I'm just getting kitted up. Obviously it's pretty cold down here, it's about minus three outside today and luckily there's no wind. But just in case, I'm putting on thermals first and uh, thick socks, uh, fleece and then I'm going to put my boat suit on. And the boat suits are completely like a dry suit so if we fell in, sort of amount of buoyancy that will uh, permit us to float and to not get cold. They are quite uncomfortable to wear. But, uh, it's better safe than sorry, I guess. And then after we've got that on, need to uh, pop on a life jacket and uh, grab a radio. Everybody who goes out on the boats has a radio with them. And, uh, and then we're ready to go. And then we'll just head down to the wharf where the boat's waiting. I'll just need to pop that in the water. And then Terry and I will head out across 
Ryder Bay, which lies just to the south of Rothera, to go and do the CTD experiment. So I'm with Terry Suster, who's a marine uh, assistant at Rodera, and we're out doing a CTD, and I was going to ask Terry a bit actually about what a CTD experiment is. Basically, we head out here and we lower the CTD down to 500 metres, and it takes measurements uh, all the way down, and it's measuring the temperature, the pressure. It's got a fluorometer on there to measure the uh, progression of the phytoplankton bloom in the summer. We've got a pH sensor. We've got a salinity measurement that we can take. And when I get back to the lab, I can download the data and then uh, see on a graph uh, the progression of uh, sort of the changes that go through the summer and winter. In winter, we try and do it once a week if we can, depending on weather. Things are a bit more difficult and tricky over winter. In summer, I try and do it twice a week because things are changing a lot more rapidly. So to capture the changes, you need to do it more often. Today, the weather is not that great, but we're going to give it a go anyway. So, Terry, what are you doing at the moment? Okay, so we've just sent down the Niskin bottle to 15 metres just to collect some water from uh, 15 metre depth, which we collect all year round. And uh, I'm just putting the water into these sample bottles, which I'll then take back to the lab. And then this afternoon, I'll be um, processing and analysing them. And we look at uh, the chlorophylls, ammonias. We send some bottles back to the UK to measure the isotopes and salts and nutrients. And again, we've got that data set going way back. So it's a good indication of um, how things are changing. Ops, ops, Terranova. Terranova, ops. Hi, Karen, that's us back at the wharf, and I'll give you a shout in a minute when we're trip complete. Terranova, Roger. Claire Lehman observing science at work in Antarctica, and we'll be bringing you more audio diaries from around the world in future editions of our Planet Earth podcast. In fact, we've got a scientist with a microphone somewhere even colder than Antarctica at this very moment. Feel free to suggest where you think it might be via our Twitter feed or Facebook page, where you'll also find videos and more news from the natural world. Until next time, from the Coral Reef Research Unit here at the University of Essex, goodbye. <laughs>